So the other day, we watched some nostalgic Muppet episodes, which is something that we did pretty regularly as a family when the kids were younger. Of course, we all had our favorite characters, right? Gonzo, Beaker, the Swedish chef, Ralph the dog, and of course, the mainstays like Kermit and Fozzie and Miss Piggy. But who were the ones that we laughed at the most? You guessed it, the two curmudgeonly old men, Waldorf and Statler, who jeered and heckled the performers any time they made it to the stage. Statler, I always dreamed we'd be back here. Waldorf, those weren't dreams, those were nightmares. Sorry, a lot of drama here. Waldorf, they aren't half bad. Statler, nope, they're all bad. Here's another one. I wonder if there really is life on another planet. Waldorf. Why do you care? You don't have a life on this planet. Statler. Wake up, you old fool. You slept through the show. Waldorf. Who's a fool? You watched it. Hey, it's Andy, and this is the 82nd episode of BNP, Biblical Narratives Podcast. Biblical detail historical context that puts you in the action. We laugh at these guys because they're funny, yet if it showed up in a real-life situation, we would view their comments as harsh and off-putting. We might even regard their contributions as destructive, though temporarily entertaining. Again, it's different in real life. In real life, the good seeds, the God-inspired seeds we plant into others are our seeds that inspire, encourage, and motivate others to move closer to Him. Our challenge? We're not always the good seed. In fact, sometimes we can relate a little too closely to the old curmudgeons up in the Muppet balcony. And picking up into today's episode, we see Paul has been secretly escorted out of Berea all the way to Athens, some 315 miles to the south. Arriving in Athens, Paul discovers how cosmopolitan the city is, filled with very different ways of thinking. And while Paul finds himself frustrated with the culture, he still has to figure out a way to deal with it, a way to minister to it. How will he adjust to this new environment? Well, stick around and find out. And with that, let's get started. With dramatic flair, Sopater gestures through the city gates and towards the Panathenaic diagonal. Welcome to Athens, he says. Without a word, the three men walk along the central corridor leading to the Agora, each contemplating the legendary history of the city that now surrounds them. Now what happens, Sopater asks. Now we eat, Paul replies. Finally, Sopater says with a smile, I was hoping you would say that. Seated along the steps beneath the stoa of Adelos, the three take in the sights of the city and vegetation around them. Pointing towards a nearby columned gate, Paul asks, What is that over there? Both Sopater and Nari look up from their bread to see where Paul is pointing. Oh, that's the gate of Athena, Nari says with a mouthful. Directing Paul's attention to another nearby building, Sopater says, See that octagon-shaped tower over there? Paul nods. That's the Tower of the Wind, Sopater replies. Paul raises his eyebrows and shrugs. What's he used for? he asks. Sopater and Nari look at each other for answers, but neither are sure. I think it was built so some guys could study the stars, Nari suggests. 
Paul contemplates for a moment and then says, This is the city of all cities, isn't it? Yeah, Sopater replies. He then shakes his head and asks, Wait, what do you mean? Paul chuckles and says, I mean, Athens is an ancient city. It's the hub of all contemporary thought, right? It's where academics and thought leaders alike have gathered to share intellectual ideas for centuries. Not knowing what to say, the two nod their heads. From the dawn of humanity, men have gathered here to figure out the purpose of life, to discover why we're here. Paul further absorbs the scene in front of him while verbalizing his thoughts. Here, they have placed their interests in the study of religion, of philosophy, of rhetoric, of oratory, of law, of politics, mathematics, arts, medicine, science, you get it. As Paul speaks, the three take a moment to observe a pot of students clamoring about the professor as they walk nearby. Paul then faces the other two men and says, Don't you see? People who live here are hungry for learning. They want to know how life works, and that's good. But my initial impression, based on the myriads of temples and statues dedicated to false idols, is that these people, in their wise thinking, have rejected the invisible qualities of the real God who created the universe and everything in it. Instead, it's pretty evident that they've chosen to engage in the never-ending, never-satisfying pursuit of philosophical speculation. The very presence of these bogus religious pursuits is a good indicator of this, Paul says as he shakes his head in frustration. Guys, believing themselves to be enlightened, the irony is that they will never find what they're looking for. Nari and Sopater look over at the group of ducklings that cling to every move made by their mother, allowing for Paul's words to simmer in their minds. So what happens next? Nari finally asks. Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? Paul responds, as if coming out of a daydream. He then stands and brushes the breadcrumbs off of his garment. Well, I'm sure that you need to start your way back in the morning. But first, can you show me the nearby synagogues? I need to get a better sense of how this city is laid out. As for these agoras, I definitely want to spend more time here. Paul continues to study his surroundings. Finally, he says, I think it would be good to have both Silas and Timothy here with me. When you get back to Berea, please send them this way as quickly as you can. The marketplace swells with activity as the morning continues. Observing shoppers and merchants engage with one another, ever haggling over price and value. Paul smiles and wonders to himself. I suspect this sort of activity happens in every marketplace in every city around the world. Merchants offer, shoppers look. Merchants heighten the value, shoppers point out the flaws. Negotiation then takes place and they agree somewhere in the middle each thinking they got the better end of the deal. Not seeing the group coming from behind, a young man accidentally brushes up against Paul. Oh, I'm sorry, says the young man. Paul turns around and says to him, No problem. I... He then notices how the young man is with the group of other young protégés walking along with their teacher. Excuse me, Paul says. The young man looks back at Paul to give him his attention. I'm new here, Paul shares but I'm really curious to know what you and your group here are doing. I've seen a number of similar groups milling about the marketplace, and it appears that you are pupils. The young man nods in affirmation. Yes, he says, as he points over at his group walking away from them. We often will walk and learn this way. It's far more real to life than just sitting in a classroom, you know. Oh, Paul says, 
Well, I, I don't want to keep you from your group, but I was just curious to know what you're studying. It's okay, as the young man begins to step backwards away from Paul and back to his group. We're learning about life, he says. Philosophy, Paul calls out. Epicureanism, the young man yells back. After returning to the marketplace day after day, Paul finds himself seated along the same steps at the base of the Stoa of Atalos, ever fascinated by the various groups that rhythmically meet up for each day's lessons with their respective teachers. Noticing the same young man from a few days back, Paul makes eye contact and nods. The young man waves back and approaches. Epicurus, Paul speaks out. You're here early. Here for today's session? The young man laughs at this and says, Well, it's Alexander, actually, and yes, I'm here for today's instruction. It's good to see you again, Paul replies. So, how long have you been involved with this group? Do you like it? Oh, very much so, Alexander replies. I'm learning so much, he says. Well, that's good, Paul muses. Any idea what today's lesson is on? Not completely, Alexander says, but we've been tackling some pretty involved subjects as of late. Oh, Paul asks. Yeah, Alexander says, but they're built off of other principles, so it's a little hard for me to explain just yet. He scratches his head and continues, You seem awfully interested in this. I am, Paul says. I think I mentioned that I'm new to Athens, right? While I've seen discipling pods in other cities, I haven't seen nearly as many as I'm seeing taking place right here. Moreover, I just find it fascinating to see that there are so many different pods with different foci. Just before you came, I saw a group of Stoics form up and take off together. Yesterday, I noticed a bunch of religious groups gather, and the day before yesterday, I saw groups focused on the arts and other philosophies. Alexander laughs at this. Yeah, Athens is a bit eclectic that way. For sure, Paul laughs and says. So what happens when the groups disagree with each other? What do you mean, Alexander asks. That happens all the time. I mean, Paul replies, each group has its professor whose aim is to guide you towards truth as it relates to life, right? Yeah, Alexander replies. That's the goal, but some offer better explanations than others. <laughs> Paul laughs. Yeah, I believe that, he says. I mentioned seeing the Stoics earlier today, and they seemed pretty confident that their truth is real truth. Alexander starts shaking his head at this. Yeah, that does seem to be how they think. Do you think they're wrong? Paul asks. Well, Alexander catches himself. There's a lot of detail here that might require a fair amount of explanation to somebody who may not understand Epicureanism. Oh, I see, Paul replies. Would you contend that the Logos is not the overarching force that governs the universe and all reason? Wait, Alexander says. You are Stoic? I am not, Paul replies. But you're familiar with what the Stoics teach, Alexander says, as he looks to see others from his group begin to arrive. I am, Paul says in response. He continues, Then I suspect you would contend that a life worth living is a life that avoids pain at all costs? That fear is unnecessarily caused by superstitious beliefs and the judgment that comes from the ever-changing and capricious nature of the gods? That the gods have no interest in humanity, right? So why pay them any attention? Human strife has thrived under this perpetual dark cloud of bad ideology, of faulty thinking. Moreover, human peace only comes to those who can rest from personal desire, as personal desire is what brings about longing and jealousy and guilt for any negative responses that come from such longing. Hey, Alex, another from his group calls out. You coming? Without looking, Alexander waves off the individual and keeps his eyes focused in on Paul's. Who are you? 
he asks. Well, we're going to stop here for today. Paul arrives in Athens and gets a lay of the land. Athens was a different place. Not only was it considered one of the world's most ancient of cities, it was also responsible for more contributions to the civilization of the ancient world more than any other city. From governmental infrastructure to civil works, architecture and engineering feats, to culture and multiple expressions of the arts, to economics and entertainment, to sports and medicine, and to a great number of contributions from other fields of interest. Ancient Athens was the epicenter of all civilized life. What did Paul need to know about how people thought while visiting the most philosophical and religious hotspot in the world? If his goal was to successfully reach the people of Athens, he needed to know how they thought. I would argue that in an effort to reach people here in America with the good news about the kingdom of heaven, we likewise need to know how people think. What do we need to know about the current ways of thinking here in America? Some of you might quickly dismiss these as a radical shift that has only recently taken root, but these virtues have been on the minds of many influential thinkers and organizations for well over a hundred years now. What we're finally just beginning to see is a mainstream adaptation to these ideals throughout our nation, especially among the up-and-coming generations. So what are these newer ways of thinking? Furthermore, what are the challenges that we face as believers, especially when our job is still to be missional? Well, let's work through it. Number one, multiculturalism, diversity, and inclusion are key values to Americans today. Whereas less than 50 years ago, marriage was to be upheld at all costs, divorce was strongly discouraged, sexual and gender expression was significantly downplayed, and racial tensions were slowly easing in a more positive direction, today we see a fairly different world, in large thanks to the development of the internet, believe it or not. The world has become much, much smaller than ever before, now that we have virtual and fingertip access to just about every corner of the globe that wishes to share. This sharing world has opened the eyes of a younger generation that grew up with the internet, placing a high value on learning from others from different cultures here in the States and abroad, including both helpful and destructive ideas. What's our challenge? Accompanying this mindset of multiculturalistic acceptance is the indifference in discovering absolute truth. Instead of living in a right versus wrong mindset, today we tend to think, that what's right for you may not be right for me. To add, because we take in more information, more entertainment than we have ever done before, Americans put less thought into the idea of seeking truth. We simply don't care about it. Today, we put a lot more of an emphasis on pursuing the thousands of other interests that have become available in the past 20 years. So, how do we encourage others to focus on Jesus when they're already overcommitted? Second, Environmental issues are also important and will become even more so in the near future. Wherever you might stand on the environment, this is another big issue for the coming generations that are living through some pretty curious and fearful times. Now, I'm not trying to get in an argument about climate change. I'm simply pointing out that if we wish to reach people, we have to be sensitive to the issues that strike a nerve with them. Furthermore, it doesn't make sense to be dismissive or poorly educated about an issue that generates so much passion. So what's our challenge? Know the issues and begin thinking through how to sensibly respond to the issues so that you may talk about greater issues pertaining to the kingdom of heaven.
Third, globalistic equality is a supreme goal for the up-and-coming generation. Along with multiculturalism comes this desire to live like others are living, not only personally, but nationally. Living in Arizona for 25 years, I noticed how a conservative red state has become more purple and even blue over the years. On one hand, Arizonians, they see themselves as not Californians. Yet, ironically, Arizona has adopted a number of California policies over the years. Maybe it's from the many Californians who have moved there and have brought California with them. So what's our challenge? Well, I raise the issue of Californians in Arizona just as an example. Even though we have a constitution here in the United States, the policies and solutions made by other nations have generated much appeal on our side to become much more like them. We figure we have too much bureaucratic red tape to get anything done, so let's change the way we do things. This feeling of bureaucratic red tape is definitely a reflection of how divided things are these days, especially amongst our two-party system. Maybe it's a grass-is-greener idealism without looking at the details and seeing how they realistically apply to our country. Nevertheless, the Californians have moved in, and the Arizonians need to figure out how to move forward with their new neighbors. And fourth, cultural and religious tolerance are not only to be condoned, they are to be embraced. Now, this has become a major theme within the Internet generations. And it does go along with multiculturalism, diversity, and inclusion. Along with the welcoming of biological inclusion, that which we cannot control, has also come the welcoming of behavioral inclusion, that which we can control. Now, this is a highly sensitive issue, especially among believers who feel that their moral values, their sense of right versus wrong, are being threatened by those who insist upon living how they want to live without question. Those who were once on the defense now have gathered enough leverage to take the offense and have changed the landscape. So what's our challenge? In light that homosexuality is now an adopted norm, that sex outside of marriage is not only okay, it's expected, that our culture by and large has forsaken all things Christian, how do we recognize that the world is no longer playing by our rules? And how do we operate within it as those belonging to the kingdom of heaven? Now, I realize I've asked more questions than answers. I haven't really given us much in the area of solutions. But I do think it is an important hurdle to jump if we wish to keep the church alive in the United States. With a highly electric political climate right now, it's hard not to enter into that realm. But I maintain that we need to live for the long haul as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, encouraging discussions much like Paul did at the grassroots level here in Athens. His discussions were not about politics. Instead, he aimed to get to the root of the matter of how individuals thought and why they did what they did. He aimed to introduce people into a new view of the world around them, a world where Jesus was at the very center of their thinking and living. In a real sense, Paul was sowing the good seed of the things of God into the minds of individuals. While there is much more to the parable of the wheat and the tares than what we can share here, I will say the gist of the parable is that while God established the world as good, an enemy has come to distort what God had originally set up. Looking very similar to one another, good seeds have taken root, but distorted seeds have moved in right next door to the good seeds. 
Instead of immediately dealing with the problem and endangering the future development of the good seeds, God will finally deal with the distorted seeds when he prepares to usher in his kingdom. Here's the parable. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. And that's Jesus in Matthew thirteen twenty-four through 30. What does this all mean, Andy? Where are you taking us? Well, I guess I'm saying this. The world we're seeing emerge here in the United States is not too much different than the world Paul experienced right there in Athens. So what did Paul do? He recognized the distorted seed for what it was, and he focused on planting the good seeds, believing that God would sort things out in the end. So what's our takeaway? Here's just three basic ideas. Number one, and you're not going to like this, but I'm just going to share it anyways. Get used to it. America is one generation away from looking even more radically different than it ever has before. If you think things are crazy now, I'm just telling you, wait. I'm not saying that we have to like it, but I am saying that we have to learn to be okay with this new normal and not let our snarkiness get in the way of how we interact with others. If you're salty, figure out a way to positively work through this so that you're identified as a salt-of-the-earth sort of person and not a curmudgeon. Second, the distorted seed isn't going away. That is until Jesus returns. We just read it, didn't we? We will continue to see distorted thinking and behaviors all around us. And while that doesn't mean that we passively sit idly by and do nothing, it does mean that we need to be about the business of being ambassadors for the kingdom of heaven. God changes hearts. That's his business. Our business is to speak and act on his behalf. Here's the issue for us. Our unwillingness to talk about Jesus is our real issue. I'm going to say that again. Our unwillingness to talk about Jesus is the issue. Do you want to see things change? Do what Paul did. Recognize the flaws in various belief systems and positively direct people to Jesus as the ultimate satisfying solution. And third, invest in people, even the ones who behave in ways you don't like. They're people. While maybe distorted, you can still plant good seed and make an eternal difference in their lives. This is our calling, guys. This is our job as kingdom ambassadors. God has saved you to do good works, to be good seed, ever influencing others to know him and to love him. Ephesians 2.10 says it brilliantly, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. May you continue as God's ambassadors, as God's good seed, ever proclaiming his goodness into the lives of others and helping them see what good things he wishes for them. 
And with that, let's move forward together.